following program is a Podcast One.com production. Podcast, and I'm here at the Podcast One Studios in Beverly Hills with my guest Craig Finn, the frontman from one of my favorite bands, The Holt Study. Watching Jonathan Demme's new Meryl Streep rock dramedy, Ricky and the Flash, and it's the smoothest and most watchable movie Demme has made since The Silence of the Lambs, though that's not saying a lot, I realized that Demme had finally found the right project after two and a half decades since The Silence of the Lambs to finally re-explore his all-inclusive humanism within the confines of a comedy drama or genre movie and let his liberal sentimentality flow freely without overwhelming the picture itself. This liberalism was always lurking in his major movies from the late 1970s and throughout the 1980s. It's there in all the comedies, Citizens Band and Melvin and Howard and Something Wild and Married to the Mob, a kindness and acceptance of the world and the flawed people who inhabit it without judgment, with a dose of sincerity that never overwhelmed his far-reaching visual aesthetic. He was, for some of us, the American Renoir. This generosity of spirit is even folded into much of The Silence of the Lambs, which becomes much more of a sympathetic feminist parable than it is in the book it's adapted from, but without ever forgetting Forgetting that the movie is first and foremost a thriller as well as a dark and teasing romance between Clarice Starling and Hannibal Lecter. Even though watching it in hindsight, you might be more inclined than ever to think that Clarice might just be getting it on with her black female roommate. And as monstrous as Buffalo Bill is, we also grasp that he's truly tortured, committing these hideous crimes because he dreams of freedom. The Silence of the Lambs is a masterpiece, and unlike the earlier movies, was the big hit that Demi never had and hasn't had since. And it feels that in 
some ways, he might have extended himself more than he might have liked to in the more ghoulish and nastier aspects of this procedural, which conversely gives the movie even more power than if it had been directed by someone turned on by all the carnage. Gore and perversity were never really Demi's thing, and he treated it as tastefully in The Silence of the Lambs as the material would allow him, but only to a degree. What happened next in the ensuing years after he won the Oscar for directing Silence of the Lambs was a kind of aesthetic disaster for Demi, and it seemed to some of us that he was apologizing for the bloody kicks of the Silence of the Lambs by giving us, yes, the very earnest social dramas Philadelphia and Beloved, where his sentimental humanism became a glaring problem. The liberalism was now overwhelming the material, and these two big movies about, yes, AIDS and slavery are artistic and conceptual failures because of this blindness, almost as if they existed to solely remind you that Demi didn't quite believe in Dr. Lecter or Buffalo Bill or giving the audience, I'm having an old friend for dinner punchline right before the credits roll at the end of The Sons of the Lambs. Making a movie out of Toni Morrison's Beloved was a foolhardy enterprise because the novel is about consciousness and it's impossible to adapt and film that. On the other hand, the Thomas Harris novel The Sons of the Lambs is most decidedly not about consciousness but concerned almost solely with story, plot, incident, and action. An ideal novel to turn into a commercially successful film. Philadelphia and Beloved now look pandering by comparison. Demi next made The Truth About Charlie, the worst movie he's ever made, and then a misbegotten remake of the John Frankenheimer classic, The Manchurian Candidate, Blasphemy, and then the half-baked tortures of Rachel's getting married, a kind of formal experiment that initially seems admirable until it unravels completely, never coalescing into focus while seeming endless. And I'm not counting the barely released A Master Builder, a bewildering update of the Ibsen play. Now, these are all R-rated adult-themed movies for grown-ups. And on a certain level, Demi's commitment to this kind of movie, the mid-level studio drama for adults without special effects, is bracing, and Demi is an ambitious believer in this kind of movie. And these movies, though misconceived, all look pretty good. And this is all a kind of long-winded prelude for me to announce that Ricky and the Flash feels like kind of a big deal because these movies don't get made by a studio anymore, and if they do, they never look or sound as good as this one does. Demi is now 71, and Meryl Streep is 66, and I don't know what AARP planet they live on where they think a geriatric bar band is in constant employment at a honky-tonk roadhouse in Tarzana playing Pink and Lady Gaga covers. And maybe this actually exists, even though it seems so movieish and contrived, but the plot of Ricky and the Flash doesn't really matter. The movie is just an excuse to see Demi going back in time to the visual and aural textures of his earlier work, and the movie looks and sounds great. The movie opens with a pretty rousing version of Tom Petty's American Girl, and the movie, as well as the band and the stage, is so vibrantly lit and photographed by Declan Quinn, and the sound mix is so clear and distinct that you are immediately reminded that Demi made the best concert film ever with The Talking Heads, Stop Making Sense, from 1983. The musical numbers scattered throughout the film are so assuredly shot that they almost make you believe that this is not a movie about Meryl Streep as a woman who abandoned her Midwestern family years ago to pursue a dream of becoming a rock star in Los Angeles, a dream that never happened, and has left Streep broke and working checkout in a Whole Foods. The movie and the Lifetime script is kind of unpersuasive about all of this, and even more so when Streep must fly to Indianapolis to help her wealthy and remarried ex-husband, Kevin Klein deal with her adult daughter after the daughter has been dumped by her husband and has attempted suicide. With Meryl Streep in this, it's never going to be totally believable. Naturalism doesn't come easily to Meryl Streep, which is 
putting it lightly. But it's fun to watch because it's Meryl Streep playing a 66-year-old rock and roller, and it's the vibrancy of Demi's technique and sensibility, finally in service of a movie that gracefully merges the technique and sensibility, and that accommodates the movie and holds it together in a way that the five or six movies he's made since The Silence of the Lambs never did. And he adds strange and idiosyncratic directorial choices to extremely conventional scenes. There's the stock scene of Ricky and her uptight ex-husband getting stoned on weed late night in the vast kitchen of his McMansion. And Streep and Klein play this like old pros. But the silences and the hesitant cutting and the music playing in the background make it add up in a way that's pure Demi and not the cliche it could have been if directed by someone else. It's also a proudly boomer movie with some funny and barbed observations about millennials that have the two millennials I saw the movie with laughing in gleeful recognition. The Flash is a bar band made up of old-timer pros, and they sound pretty damn good. Rick Springfield's a little too wet and soft as Ricky's guitarist and love interest. Where's Sam Elliott when you need him most? And what saves the movie is that they're believers in the music, and so is Jonathan Demi, and you're pretty much completely persuaded by their skill and passion. And when Demi stages the triumphant final number of the band covering Bruce Springsteen's My Love Will Not Let You Down... And there was another corny scene in a corny movie. Demi and the band sell it, and so does Meryl Streep. Her voice is okay, but she sells the song through sheer passion, technique, and bravado. The movie in these final moments becomes an elegy for boomer perseverance. For both Ricky and Meryl, as well as Jonathan Demi, it isn't ironic, and it isn't twee. It's full-on rock and roll, and it believes in the drama as well as the healing passion of the music. It believes in hard-won salvation, which is what Ricky has been looking for all along, and which finally comes to her... I was thinking about Craig Finn and his band The Hold Steady while I was watching Ricky on The Flash, not only because... I knew Craig was going to be on the podcast, but also because I had been re-listening to the six Hold Steady albums that were recorded over a 10-year period from 2004 to 2014, and also Finn's solo music as well. And though the Hold Steady aren't The Flash, um, the Hold Steady are artists and The Flash are professionals, they are a bar band and the sound is not totally dissimilar. The keyboards are were more present in the Hold Steady, but the Hold Steady isn't a cover band. It's a band that supports Craig Finn's original lyrics, the lyrics as well as the music that saw me through a midlife depression a few years ago. I was listening to the Hold Steady and trading them off with the National. Uh, Yes, I am a white man of a certain age. While struggling with a number of setbacks, professional and personal, in Los Angeles, and I tweeted at one point that the Hold Steady really got me through a rough couple of months in the way that certain bands and records can get you through shit until you play them out. During this time, I had even titled one of the eight episodes of an hour-long drama series I had created and was contracted to write, Multitude of Casualties, which was my favorite song off their second record. I didn't know it then, but my tweet was going to be later used in the advertising for the next Hold Steady record, Heaven Is Whenever, and I was just re-emerging from the pain of those years, and honestly, I barely noticed, and only when friends told me, hey, you're being quoted in the new Hold Steady ads, I could only nod blurry-eyed and mumble, well, that's great. As a writer, I was immediately attracted to the Hold Steady when I first heard them in 2004 with their debut album called Almost Killed Me, not only because they sounded like the best bar band in America, and they were and still are, but because the songs told stories. Though full admission, it was the epic sound of the Hold Steady's music that grabbed me first. And by the time Separation Sunday, the second record came out, 
Finn as lead singer and lyricist was, I realized, dealing with recurring characters and settings, talk singing about the exploits of Holly and Gideon and Charlemagne and the various skaters and prostitutes and ravers in their circle drifting from song to song, record to record, party to party, city to city, with an enormous array of drugs cataloged and consumed. What I didn't know then was that the hold steady was the second act for Craig Finn. Finn graduates from Boston College in 1993 and works as a financial broker for American Express in Minnesota, where he's from, and where he begins the band Lifter Puller. Lifter Puller is the first act for Craig Finn from 1994 to 2000, and they're really big in Minneapolis, but never anywhere else, and after a few records, the band breaks up, but it's not for nothing. A Lifter Puller for the uninitiated is actually a thing, and the records are good, but they are just a precursor to what Finn would achieve with the Hold Steady. Craig Finn moves to New York in 2000, but it isn't until 2003 that the ideas of Lifter Puller are transformed into the Hold Steady. The origin story of the Hold Steady is that guitarist Tad Kubler and Finn are watching Martin Scorsese's 1978 documentary of the band's final concert, The Last Waltz, and Finn asks, why aren't there any bands like this anymore? So the Hold Steady is created and amps up the drama of Lifter Puller and becomes the best indie bar band in America by a very wide margin. The recurring settings and characters from Lifter Puller remains intact along with oceans of alcohol and massive hangovers and bad decisions and more drugs and murder, but the narrative and aural momentum is up by a much bigger sounding band. It's widescreen cinematic classic rock for the indie set, kind of like Pavement when they made Crooked Rain, Crooked Rain, but caring a lot more and definitely more impassioned than Mountainous and Company. Uh, it's more like that rather than, say, Kings of Leon. You know, big cr- crunchy riffs, guitar solos, piano and organ solos, and Finn being one of the best lyricists in town add up to a truly great band. The songs are written as confessionals, though not necessarily the confessions of Craig Finn, but voiced by that amazing cast of characters, minutely detailed and precise, yet also amiably rambling. And there is in the hold steady a belief in an old-fashioned rock ethos, where the influences are everyone from Springsteen and Drive-By Truckers to Kerouac and Jim Carroll to two of Finn's Minneapolis local faves, Husker Du and The Replacements. The whole study are classic rock revivalists and believers in the record. Yes, the totality of the record and not the dreaded insistence of the single. Believers in the record and the music as communal experience, and the albums kept getting better. Almost Killed Me and Separation Sunday moved into the more epic-sounding and polished boys and girls in America. If pressed, probably my favorite and Stay Positive and Heaven is Whenever and into last year's Teeth Dreams Finn released a rather excellent solo record Clear Heart, Full Eyes in 2012 and now on September 11th releases his new solo album called Faith in the Future and the two songs that I've been playing the most are um, Maggie, I've Been Searching for Our Son and Newmeyer's Roof and about Newmeyer's Roof, Craig Finn has written I moved to NYC on September 15, 2000 just less than a year later came the terrible events of September 11, 2001 I was working in an office in Union Square and my friend and boss Chris Newmeyer suggested we come to his apartment on 2nd Avenue in the East Village we could see the towers from the roof, he said we went up there and saw the towers burn and then collapse at some point he suggested we get some beer. I didn't know what to feel that day. Most of us had no emotion to access. So we got some beer and drank the one watching the World Trade Center go down. It sounds detached now, but at the time it made sense on a day when nothing else made sense. I spent some years after that in darkness. There was a girl in the 33rd floor of one of the towers that was a receptionist at an investment bank. She went to work that day, and when the plane hit, they asked her to stay where she was. They said it was safest. She decided against that and walked out of the towers, and like the rest of us, did her best to get on with her life. Some years later, I went to a birthday party 
party. I talked to this girl. We talked all night. We fell in love and are still together. I came out of the darkness. I'm glad she didn't do what they told her to do. Newmeyer's Roof isn't about this exactly. It's a song about believing that something better is coming. It's a song about light after darkness. So, Craig, I know that the new album, Faith in the Future, isn't an album about 9-11 like, um, like Bruce Springsteen's The Rising. But you've said that for five years after 9-11, you were living in a kind of hangover. And I'm wondering what that was about. I, and I assume you don't mean literally, though maybe that too. But where were you mentally and emotionally after Lifter Puller disbands and you moved to New York and 9-11 happens? And, and what's kind of going on in that hangover stage that you described? And also, why did you finally write Newmeyer's Roof after all these years? Uh, the thing, right before 9-11, I also turned 30. And I had moved to New York. Uh, my band, Lifter Puller, had broken up. And I thought I wanted to kind of not... I, my, my idea was that I was going to not be in music. I was just going to be a guy. I was married at the time. And I thought I'd have a job and a wife, and I'd just sort of get on with my life, putting music behind me. And that didn't go that well. I was not satisfied. Um, the marriage was not going well. And, you know, the career, it wasn't like I had a career. I just had sort of had a job. And so there was a dissatisfaction there. And that's all in the shadow of 9-11 where there's all this anxiety in the city and, you know, people are losing their jobs. And it seems it, it, every time there's sort of a loud noise for the few months after 9-11 that you're kind of jumping yeah, almost yeah. in. And so there was this dissatisfaction. And um, out of that, we, we started the Hold Steady and it was all of a sudden there was sort of an opportunity to go, you know, it was like, first I was like, well, we can only really play local shows. And then, you know, all of a sudden Pittsburgh's on the phone. Can you come play Pittsburgh? And it's like, you know what, that's better than going to this job tomorrow. <laughs> and so let's go do that. And I look back on it now and I see nine 11 being part of that time and, and starting a hang, you know, start, I think there was citywide kind of a hangover after that. I think everyone was, everyone I knew was just started drinking a lot and mm -hmm. people who were single started sleeping with a lot of people. Mm -hmm. And it was, it was, there was this thing. And for me, it was kind of marked, I, I got a divorce and um, at the, the end of it sort of was right around boys and girls in America. Um, it was marked by meeting someone new who, who I'm still with and finding love. Um, but also, you know, having this band happening that was very exciting after years of not much. Well, it, it, we've talked about this with various people in the podcast, most notably uh, Gerard Way of My Chemical Romance, actually decided to start the band that day because he was going into the city and he saw the towers fall. And it was, you know, for a lot of people, uh, it was kind of a, an epiphany. A, 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 you know, to bring it to you, it sounds so narcissistic, but in terms of like, okay, I'm not going to let this happen anymore. I'm not going to be bored. I'm not going to like, you know, I'm going to you know take things more seriously. And, and I want to re recommend a really good 9-11 memoir by a guy named Brian Charles called There's a Road to Everywhere Except Where You Came From. And Brian Charles was a young guy also working in an investment bank in one of the towers. And the same thing happened to him, told to stay where he was after the tower was hit. And he didn't stay and he got out. And it's really, this memoir is really about the year leading up to this moment, a uh, year he spent in New York trying to become a writer before he had to get a real job and becoming disillusioned with everything and how it all culminated uh, for a guy in his 20s in one of the towers of 9-11. Uh, the Epiphany, you know, more yeah. or less, and I, and I recommend it highly. Yeah, um, I mean, there, there's also that book, Netherland, um, the yeah. novel by Joseph O'Neill, right? Yeah, and, yeah. I mean, that, I think, captures some of the malaise after the, uh, after the, after the events yeah. um, in a way that I think, when I look back, I, I, you know, there's obviously that day, which was crazy, but I, I sort of have this 
few years of kind of gray that 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 follow that are i think equally as important somehow at least in my my life I want to jump around a bit, and I want to talk about something that we talk about a lot on the podcast, and we'll get back to some music stuff. Corporate culture is something we talk about a lot uh, here, and its effects on free speech and the media. And one of the creepiest things that's happened or didn't happen in the last month or so was during the uh, Tom Cruise media blitz for Mission Impossible Rogue Nation and the collective silence about asking him anything about uh, Scientology based. Uh, you know, many thought that uh, after the airing of Alex Gibney's going clear documentary about the very dark side of the Church of Scientology, which of course Tom Cruise is its most high profile member, that it was just going to be unavoidable for Cruz to not field questions about the very dark allegations the movie raises and asking if he had any comments about it. Would he like to defend himself uh, against the allegations and say, for instance, they're not true? I, I don't know what the movie is talking about. Now, um, Jimmy Fallon is never going to even remotely ruffle a star like Tom Cruise or anybody really, and nor is the British Film Institute when they interviewed Cruz on stage, but some of us were surprised that Tom Cruise was going to be on The Daily Show with Jon Stewart. I thought, ooh, this could be interesting. And I promise everybody, this will lead into a music question. In The Atlantic this month, the writer Sophie Gilbert noted that Stewart, who during his career has won two Peabody Awards for Public Service and the Orwell Award for Distinguished Contribution to Honesty and Clarity in Public Language, represented the most challenging interviewer Cruz has faced on the Mission Impossible Rogue Nation tour during a challenging year for the actor. The Going Clear documentary alleges that the actor personally profited from slave labor. Church members were paid 40 cents an hour to outfit the star's airplane hangar and motorcycle, and that his former girlfriend was punished by the church by being forced to do menial work after telling a friend about her relationship troubles with Cruz. The film's director, Alex Gibney, said in January, for Cruz not to even address the allegations seems palpably irresponsible. But on The Daily Show, as with every single other interview that was approved by Cruz, not a single mention of Scientology came up. Instead, Gilbert noted, Cruz discussed his exercise regime, the importance of a healthy diet, and how he still has his own hair at 53. Gilbert writes that part of the problem for freedom of speech in the press in this country lies in the fact of, quote, the Byzantine structure of the entertainment industry. The Daily Show with Jon Stewart is broadcast on Comedy Central, which is owned by Viacom. Viacom also owns Paramount Pictures, the studio behind the Mission Impossible franchise. Now, the question for Jon Stewart then is, why bother giving a huge movie star a meaningless six-minute spot to promote a movie at all? Stewart was leaving The Daily Show the following week after 16 years of hosting the show. So what would happen to him if he did ask Cruz even a light, jokey question about those Scientology allegations? Stewart chose not to. Or did he choose not to? I don't know. There is this idea that corporate culture dictates a lot of things, including free speech. And again, I'm going to tie this into music in a bit. But first off, I just want to ask you, Craig, as a public person with ideas and opinions who creates content, do you feel this folding back? in yourself, say, uh, I don't know, on Twitter or talking to an audience? Or do you think this is all ridiculously alarmist and who really cares? Or do you feel there's something ominous in the air? No, I think there's something ominous. I mean, there's obvious uh, ways that corporations uh, influence politics now. But, I, you know, as, as an artist, I feel like with the Twitter, it's almost like if I offer my real, maybe I think a movie sucked or, or, or more importantly, a band I didn't like. To put it on Twitter, I know that I'm going to be involved in a dialogue that also, you know, it's going to get responses. No, that's a great band. What are you talking about? Uh, you know, and, and it's whether I have the energy to deal with that. Oh, yes. 
<laughs> that, yeah. is, that's, that, that is what happened. That's the biggest thing um, for me. So I don't know. It's almost like there's a self-editing. And I think if I was 23, uh, I would have a lot more energy towards that kind of thing because I'd want people to know my opinions about everything. And I would want to stay up late arguing about them. And, you know, for me, I've seen, you know, I, I, at one point I made an offhand comment in the British press about the Red Hot Chili Peppers and not really liking their music. And, you know, all of a sudden it's like you're getting like 200 emails. Um, and you're saying, well, I'm not going to do that again. <laughs> right. Or you can say, I'm not going to censor myself again. I'm not going to become a kind of this – is, this is the battle that I've had because mm-hmm. I, I agree with you. I think that it does become exhausting. And do you want this fusel, you know, this avalanche of usually negativity about a, an opinion you have? Or do you stay true to yourself and even care about what these people say? I, it's hard, but I think to a degree – sometimes I feel passionate about something. Right. And I can't kind of stop myself, and I've gotten into trouble. And, of course, Twitter is a terrible place to contextualize anything, so you're probably doomed, sure, no matter what. But moving into this idea of the corporate culture, uh, this theme on the season of the Brett Easton Ellis podcast, there's a topic that two female guests on the podcast, Shirley Manson from Garbage and Peaches, talked about. And that was, where have the rebels gone in contemporary music? Where are the angry riot girls? Where was the new Bikini Kill or the new Slater Keeney or Courtney Love or even Liz Fair or even Alanis Morissette. And we talked about the reasons why there might not be any caustic female voices in the aspirational, the aspirational corporate culture we all live in and we all share in. And and then we realized it wasn't just a gender thing. And we started wondering, well, where are the angry young men? Where are the new artists who are, you know, railing against the bullshit of the status quo? Where are the popular bands criticizing corporate culture and the culture at large? And I'm talking about mainstream acts. Mm-hmm. What has happened? Or, or is this something that only we have noticed? I think it's happened. I think that, that people, I, I wonder if people just somehow somewhere along the line rock and roll or whatever we call it now has decided it i I think that it can't make a difference you know i think that it's feels like it's throwing bottles against a wall and i think that that's probably one part of it because you don't have a um a huge voice certainly in in rock that's that's i mean you have you too but it doesn't. It sort of feels like they're on the corporate side, right? Well, you know, when you're when you're giving concerts promoting <laughs> a, and the Apple Watch, yes, I think right, so, yeah. right. But um, you know, I think a lot of our a lot of the big artists. I mean, you know, even you know, the movie Straight Outta Compton right now. Mm-hmm. Uh, Dr. Dre is. I believe he's on the board at like you're. You know, yeah. I mean, at, I mean, those are those are people that have crossed over and shook hands with with the corporations, I guess. Thinking about all the bands, uh, again, tying this into the, the corporations, there was a, in the New York Times recently, the writer um, Karina Chicano wrote, once a long time ago, a rock star was a free-spirited, convention-flouting artist, rebel hero, Dionysian fertility god who fronted a world-famous band, sold millions of records, and headlined stadium concerts where people were trampled in frenzies of cult-like fervor, someone who smashed guitars, trashed hotel rooms, developed Byzantine drug problems, and tried to mask evidence of his infidelity with the strategically applied scent of breakfast burritos. This Despite what his Behind the Music episode would invariably reveal, a rock star, or the platonic ideal of a rock star, was not just a powder keg of charisma and unresolved childhood issues, but a revolutionary driven by a need to assert the primacy of the self in an increasingly alienating commercial world. 
Now the phrase Rockstar has made a complete about face. In its new incarnation, it is more likely to refer to a programmer, salesperson, social media strategist, business-to-business telemarketer, recruiter, management consultant, or celebrity pastry chef than to a person in a band. The term has become shorthand for a virtuosity so exalted it borders on genius, but only for some repetitive, detail-oriented task. It flatters the person being spoken about by shrouding him in mystique while also conferring a Svengali-like power on the person speaking. So posting a listing for a job which only rock stars need apply casts an H&R manager as a kind of corporate Malcolm McLaren, that nobody is looking for a front-end developer who is addicted to heroin or bites the heads off doves in conference rooms goes without saying. But pretty much anyone can be a rock star these days, except actual rock stars who are encouraged to think of themselves as brands. Now, she goes on to write that rock stars themselves bear the responsibility for brand rock stardom. In her book, No Logo, A Study of the Effects of Advertising on Culture, Naomi Klein traces the inversion of artists and corporate rage earners to the 1980s when seemingly every 1970s rock star who survived youthful hard living into hale middle age entered into a synergistic alliance with other bigger brands. Comeback concert sponsorships, commercial licensing agreements, lucrative advertising contracts, co-branded merchandising opportunities. These all offer the aging rock star drifting into irrelevance advantages only a diehard romantic and well-funded idealist would turn down. A final global victory lap, an extra couple of hundred million in the bank, that sounds like a lot, and a shot to trade enshrinement in a specific era for an eternal, ahistoric, ever-fungible brand relevance. You know, yes, Bono performing a concert launching the Apple Watch is a very long way from the Doors lawsuit where John Densmore was being sued by Ray Manzarek and Robbie Krieger over refusing to go along with using the Doors music in Cadillac ads or, you know, any ads. And the Densmore story, I mean, is a long way from much younger musicians like Ezra Koenig from Vampire Weekend who just don't look at advertising that way anymore and happily agree to license songs for, you know, a variety of products. Densmore argued that licensing the end to Apocalypse Now was a very cool thing for the band to be associated with, but using Love Me Two Times to sell Viagra is just not going to be something that is never going to fly with them. And this all ties into something that you did bring up, which is this synergistic way a very successful band must navigate and operate throughout the culture now. And maybe all of this cross-pollinizing is what dilutes the power of the music. I, I don't know. And makes the artist seem less interesting. Or maybe it adds to it. I don't know. Maybe it, it's thrilling for the people out there now. I don't know. There are there are people that will that find it thrilling, you know, that this branding of the artists and, you know, coming out with a clothing line or something as an extension of, of a musician. There are definitely people I know who find that awesome, and that's what they like. Um, I think one of the things that you're talking about on, in a music, on a musician level, though, is for someone like The Doors, you've taken all those record sales off the table. I mean, right. the, no one's making money off that. So the thing, you know, even in the 90s when I was in Lifter Puller, if Budweiser called, it would have been like a real conversation. And that's, you know, a couple of people that had $10 to their names. But we'd have to think, well, what, you know, and with the whole steady, if Budweiser calls, and they have, it's like, absolutely we we drink beer and we 
you know, quite honestly, need that money to keep, right. to, to fund the band, and it's a, it's only seen as a good thing. And that's that's happened in my lifetime that I think of it completely different because someone has to, you know, you have to keep the lights on, and that is m- most likely the way, you know, when those things come up, you have to. And it, even the hold steady, it never ran, but we did a Sears ad, and it was like, you know, Sears called and said, "Would you write an original song?" And we said, "Well, d- does it, you know, Sears isn't a brand that you think is." It's not a brand you're dying to be associated with at this point in 2015, or this was probably 2010. But, you know, through negotiations, it's like, yeah, we'll we'll do that. I I don't know that they were going to say it was the hold steady. Um, And they didn't, they tested the ad and it never ran. So it was kind of in some way big win win for win for us. Again, Shirley Manson, a very passionate advocate, was on, and she was talking about how streaming basically destroyed the music business. She has no, feels no optimism about it. She feels that she's she's a complete Gen X pessimist about um, what happened. Uh, she said that streaming completely destroyed the music industry and that a musician, in order to have an income now, it's solely about touring. And touring now with a new management mindset which is taking even bigger cuts from touring because they're not getting any of the revenue from selling records. And so it's even harder for a band now uh, on tour. And she's about to go on tour with uh, Garbage uh, for the 20th anniversary release of the first Garbage record. She also said that even though Garbage made money during their run, don't think that Garbage made that much off the records. And all four members of Garbage had writing credits and all the songs. So they sold 17 million records. <laughs> And she said that what she took from that, what she got made off that, was one point seven million. See what maybe yeah. one point seven uh, over a twenty year period of sure. selling selling records. And she's grateful that she got in the door before it closed. But the idea of becoming wildly wealthy in the arts, becoming wildly wealthy in music or in film, is dead. Yeah. Basically, it's dead. So streaming and the kind of democratization of the arts in general. It's just turned making music and making movies into a kind of hobby and not really a way of a sustainable way of living. So then what happens? Where is the artist kind of left? I mean, I think hopefully if you're an artist that that exists, I really truly believe that 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 exists outside of, of, of money. For instance, I think my response to my life is to write songs. And if, right, right, if right. I, you know, won the lottery or if I was absolutely broke and destitute, I think I'd still be writing songs about whatever situation I was in or, or reflecting that. So, you know, I, I, I guess becoming from, my age, 19, I graduated high school in 89, college in 93. This is sort of, I was very, very into music before Kurt Cobain came along. And I think that's a demarcation at point. And it's not all Kurt Cobain, but it was that alternative rock thing. I remember going to a show when I first started going to see punk and hardcore bands. And I thought, you know, I was in eighth grade. I thought they were making tons of money. I thought, I didn't know about touring. I thought they flew there, played the show and flew home. And then a few years later, one of the bands we went and saw asked us if we had a place to crash. And then I sort of did the math and I went, wait, there's 30 people here and we paid $5. There's only $150 total. So... At that point, I sort of got real, and I, and I was never expecting. I always thought that this was something you did aside from your job. 
Um, so to be it in, it wasn't until I was well into my thirties that I started doing music professionally, but it's, it's only works because, you know, my overhead's so low, I don't have kids, right. etc. Yeah, you're right. I mean, I'm haunted by this conversation I had with a friend of mine who was a screenwriter who was doing really well in the business. His wife was a successful TV actress and then everything kind of fell apart and they had money problems and they were increasingly stressed out and panicked thinking about what to do, what to do and how do they get into this position and what were they doing there and really the conversation was the wife looked back on uh, when she was a teenager and she said well did we ever really want to do did you want to be a writer did I want to be an actress to make money no my first impulse was to want to be an actress and so I, that, that, that's true that is the first impulse but you know it's difficult to look at the, the music industry now in a way when in the 90s there was yes, Pearl Jam there was Nirvana there was Soundgarden there was Stone Temple Pilots whatever there was big huge bands with noticeable front men who sold tens of millions of records. And I'm thinking about all the bands that I've been randomly listening to in the last few months. All good bands, all bands I admire and, and enjoy. Um, the War on Drugs, The Japan Droids, Sun Moon Kill, Parquet Courts, Against Me, The New Pornographers, Spoon, Wussy, Proto Martyr. I mean, do any of these bands have a discernible narrative that we all know? And are any of these lead singers automatically identifiable? And does it all seem so niche now? And is niche interesting? Especially compared to a band everyone was listening to at one time, a band that dominated the culture that everyone was talking about, the collective mass communal experience that bound everyone together. And as you said, not even you 2 or Coldplay really does that anymore. I mean, this isn't good or bad, but as a, someone of a certain age, I notice it and I feel it. Does that mean anything to you? Does that resonate? I think one of the things is uh, uh, rock and roll is just not popular. In I mean, when you look at it in, no, in, the, no. in the sense of popular music, because you know people like Kanye West um, or Drake are big stars, right? I mean, they still are. Uh, Putting themselves out there the way that we think, you know, Led Zeppelin would right. almost having big concerts and and big events, and I think rock and roll has been marginalized a little bit. And I think the people who like it are people, you know, closer to me or you know some of the bands you named. Think about who their front men are, and they're probably closer to me than Robert Plant. I think there has been a natural just sort of aging of rock and roll. That's what's happened with rock and roll aging, and I think hip hop has has taken. Uh, taking some of the grandness from it i miss the rock and roll excess of paul stanley and gene simmons and of led zeppelin 70s era rolling stones uh the sex pistols motley Crue, uh, the eagles even guns and roses sure. the Be- the beastie boys even the replacements has this all been co-opted by music being made and again here we go created within now the corporate culture in other words has that influenced to a degree the way bands make music promote themselves politely and being a professional being a professional seems to be the thing to aim for the highest and sincerity and earnestness that seems to be prized in the culture morrissey went off as 
Morrissey is prone to do on how boring it all is now. And that it's both the corporation's fault for pushing guys like Sam Smith and Ed Sheeran, but that it's just the aversion to danger and menace and darkness and excitement in music now. I mean, when you are growing up in a culture that insists you like me, like me, like me, like me all the time, then what other sound and what other music are you going to expect? I mean, when the big young bands are all about whiny self-victimization and aspirational songs and marching anthems about self-worth, you know, Morrissey asks, well, what do we expect anyway from these artists considering the culture that raised and nourished them? I mean, the earnestness is almost overwhelming. So, of course, nobody is reacting against anything now, because what would they be reacting against? What do you think about this? Or, or am I – I am sounding like a very bitter Gen Xer. <laughs> well, I think – I mean, one of the things I think that have that, that you also have to consider is – and I'm a huge Kiss fan, but, you know, there's this, this Paul Stanley um, – Gene Simmons, also Spinal Tap. There's this archetype of rock and roll guy that became unattractive to people, mm-hmm. uh, and and it's like, oh no, that guy's here, you know, <laughs> like you know, he comes in and and it's and it's Vince Neil or it's you know, <laughs> David Lee Roth, who I love, but you know, maybe you don't want him at your party. Um, <laughs> and there's also this other thing that happened. I think I, I point to. And it's because the way I experienced it in my own life, when Pavement came out, Mm -hmm. um, you know, I was a huge Replacements fan. I grew up in Minneapolis, but I didn't really feel like I was so much like those guys. I I saw guys like that around. I knew those guys, but there was difference. I grew up in kind of a Tony suburb and played tennis, Mm -hmm. but Pavement came out and I was like, those, I know those, like I went to school with those guys. Exactly. Um, Both at a, you know, and, and, and they liked sports. They admitted it. That was a huge thing for me. I was always a closet sports fan because I loved punk rock, but I didn't want to talk about the twins with my friends. Not my punk fan friends anyways. But Pavement kind of came out and said, we're kind of this post-collegiate guys. We, we graduated from good schools and we yeah. play. And, and I think that that really changed maybe who wanted to be in a band or who, who felt comfortable being in a band. Certainly Vampire Weekend seems an offshoot of that completely. Yeah, absolutely. Myself also. You know, I felt like, well, I, yeah, you know, maybe, maybe I don't lie about certain things. Maybe this is, this is who I am. You know, it's interesting that you mentioned that because friends and I were talking about how we liked the uh, dumbness in rock and that, yes, you can like the Decemberists, but... I also like One Direction songs as well, mm-hmm. and there's a mix, you know. I can be annoyed by Jim Morrison's mor- moronic pretensions <laughs> at times, and I can be stirred by them as well. It depends on the song. And you have said that the worst lyric you've ever heard was from Riders <laughs> on the Storm. There's a killer on the road. His brain is squirming like a toad. I think that's a pretty good the one. toad squirm? <laughs> I don't know. But um, I remember the summer of Alanis Morissette's You Oughta Know. And even though we liked her in the record, and it's not a bad lyric, just the delivery of it was so theatrical. The big joke that we had that summer it was apropos of nothing, just telling someone, uh, would she go down on you in a theater? You know? <laughs> Uh, the thing is, like, what's so great about smartness and uh, the indie pop press? Uh, I'm a huge Elvis Costello fan, but maybe not necessarily because of the lyrics. And I think dumbness can be good for music, and it usually, you know, wins on the charts. And I can enjoy Luke Bryant's Roller Coaster single as much as a Roseanne Cash or a Lucinda Williams record. But there is a snobbery. There is a kind of hipster ism at play in the indie press that many musicians have mentioned on this podcast. Ezra Koenig and Stephen Malkmus and Ariel Pink have all talked about 
the insularity of the indie rock press and with Ariel, you know, this burgeoning, insane, politically correct movement that is attacking the content of a song he had about a stripper from her point of view that they leapt on as misogynist, you know, mm-hmm. completely missing the context of the song. There's a list of rules that a band must follow in order to stay relevant for the journalists and critics, and that a kind of record needs to be made to be reviewed positively by them, and that they can be as restricted and as uptight as the mainstream press in terms of what they choose to cover and to anoint as good and what they choose to ignore. What do you think happened with the indie press and their reaction to the Fifth Hold Steady album, Heaven Is Whenever, and how they received it? I mean, it seemed to me that the fr- it was the first record by the Hold Steady that has a slightly muted reaction from the music press. Now, I loved the record, and I loved the sound, and I loved the direction you were going to, but some critics thought, what? And why? Was it just another angle to write about the band that they decided to go that way? What was your reaction to well, that? Well, I think it's hard to release a fifth record. If you're, if you're an indie band now, and they were covering you on your first record, your fifth record is going to be a tough sell. I mean, I think that it's easier and more exciting for them to write about a new band. I mean, you know, it's like, you, I'd rather write an article if you made me write an article. I'd rather write it about a new band that no, one, no one's heard of mm-hmm. than I would about some some band's fifth album because there's just... There's there's just a lot of things in there. I think the other thing in that record, a I, I don't I don't think it was our strongest record. So I sort of agree with some of it. I don't think it was my best work. Um, there was stuff going on within the band that was that was troubling. Um, but there was uh, and also our keyboard player Franz left. Right. So right there, there's a hook. I mean, that's right. I think people want. People want you to fail, and yeah. that that just gives you the story. You just yeah. served them the story, whether it's true or not. You just served it on a silver platter. Why did I like the record so much then? I don't know. Am I, I mean, just a mindless fan? <laughs> no, you know, there's this thing. I when I look back on that record, I, I was overly obsessed with the fact that it was a fifth record. I'm like, oh, how many of my bands didn't even make, my favorite bands didn't even make fifth record? So I got the idea, like, oh no, we're part of the establishment. And a lot of those lyrics on those records, when I look back, are weirdly advice lyrics, mm-hmm. as if I. Mm-hmm. have any advice to give anyone but there was this you know i love the sweet part of the city the first song mm-hmm. um but you know there's there's a lot of songs on that where i'm kind of offering this as like a cool older Interesting. brother Interesting. and uh and I, I i don't know that i agree with the tone of it when i look back like what was i thinking that i had anything advice to give anyone <laughs> you know and who was i who was i talking to like my little cousin or like a younger band or i don't know
You're born in Boston, but you're raised in Edina, Minnesota? Edina, yeah. Edina, and is a middle class, upper middle class? Um, yeah, I, you know, somewhere in there. My dad was a um, was the managing partner of a, a big six accounting firm in the Minneapolis mm-hmm. office. And so, yeah, you know, I mean, it was it went to private high school. Which you, you know. excelled in, I yeah, hear. Yeah, I did, uh, I did all right. I did pretty well at school. Mm-hmm. You know, I liked it. Um, but, you know, there was vacations and there was country club and that kind of thing. It was certainly pretty comfortable. It's interesting. I, you know, we always talk about people's childhoods on the podcast because so many of the, the artists that come on locate the pain in their childhood and adolescent as why they became artists. Now, we have the occasional person who that's not true at all. I assume this is not your case. I did not feel much pain. You know, I, when I was in junior high, I was really picked on because I was just nerdy. And But I was at a different school where, like, that was a hard hard place to be. I transferred to a school where more people were nerds, and it started to work out much better. <laughs> um, but no, not a lot of pain. Um, I don't – I do not have – you know, there isn't much of a chip on my shoulder about that. But I was sort of, you know, through – just sort of being into things, being encouraged to read and, and, and investigating things, I became sort of obsessive about music and books and things like that. But it was it was not through any kind of – there was not a restrictive environment or, or any sort of painful one. And there were um, – you got into books because they were just around? Yeah, I was always a reader and I was just kind of – I think one of the – okay, one of the things I think – I was telling a story uh, when I was a kid – I was watching Happy Days and and I Fonzie came on and he's obviously he's a cool guy and I I remember asking my mom, hey, you know, is that that Fonzie's cool, right? She said, yeah, well, that's his thing. He's cool. And I said, do we know anyone cool? And she said, no, we don't know anyone cool. So I think there was this thing like, okay, it's all cool and I have all this, you know, privilege. Um, but always wanting to see, you know, gritty things and, and kind of being fascinated with that and, and reading things that might explore more decadent or more gritty lifestyle. And so who were the writers in that you were drawn to during this period? I mean, uh, Kerouac, uh, even like hard-boiled stuff, John, Jim Thompson, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, you know, Less Than Zero was a big book mm-hmm. for me in high school. That kind of, those kind of stories about people... Uh, you know, living on on an edge or sort uh, basketball diaries, mm-hmm. um, uh, that kind of thing. So, high school is a happy time. Girls, drugs, all Catholicism, of it. <laughs> all of it. You know, and and to me, it fit together. It was a. Uh, um, I had a girlfriend. I had friends. Whoa. I was, uh, you know. Um, I was going to a lot of rock shows. That was kind of, I had one or two friends that I'd do with that. And we'd go to these all ages shows and first Avenue in downtown Minneapolis. And, uh, but it was all it was all cool, you know. I was not the coolest guy in school, but I also wasn't, you know, I was, I was somewhere in the middle, and uh, it it was it was all pretty good. Was there anywhere else you applied besides Boston College, or was that your first choice? That was my first choice, and I it was I was talking to my friend about this because he has a son who's talking about college now, and I was thinking it was some part of Boston College was some part of my narrative for myself. Mm-hmm. I wanted to go to a Catholic school. I had this. Thing that I do in high school, and I, I really like it, was, it, it. And I don't do. I'm not a fashionable guy, but in high school, I remember I would always try on these outfits, and I would like go for this look where I would say, "I want people to not know if I'm into hardcore or if I've never heard of it." Mm-hmm. Meaning, like almost, mm-hmm. almost nerdy, but you know, uh, if if it was a jeans with a rip in it, it had to be a really nice shirt, and if it was really 
pleated khaki, or, you know, uh, pressed mm-hmm. khaki pants that had to have a punk T-shirt somewhere on, you know. So it was, I had this narrative that I was going to be this Catholic guy that could fit in at Boston College and, you know, be, which is a very conservative place, but also be able to go to hardcore shows and do drugs or whatever it was, you know. And uh, what were you studying there? Communi- Communications. But that was just sort of a lack of... Uh, knowing what to do. Um, Did they have any writing courses there or not? They, they had creative writing, but I didn't do it. Uh, I wasn't, I, when I got there, I got sort of disengaged and I just sort of kind of went to the classes and I, I wish I would have gotten more out of it. Well, what I did do, towards the end, I started getting interested in the Catholicism part of it. I realized you could take these amazing classes with these Jesuits who are very smart and interesting. And so at the end, I was kind of trying to get a Catholicism minor, but I ran out of time. <laughs> but uh, but I spent a lot of time reading that kind of thing. And then also just reading. Like, I went up there to do a master class, and I was kind of thinking, I wish I would have gotten more out of school. And when I got up there and I walked across the quad, I was like, well, the good news is I laid there and read books most every day. Now, they weren't mm-hmm. necessarily the books assigned to me, but those are four years to lay around and read books that, you know, that, that's a luxury. Shirley Manson and I were talking about how each decade has its own, whether we like it or not, has its own unique kind of aura about it, a very definite narrative about each decade, and that the 90s had a very definite definition to it as much as the 80s or the 50s did. Uh, Maybe harder to see on a surface level, but an amazing amount of prosperity, the tech bubble happening. Uh, I remember Manhattan was a crazier place in terms of wealth than the 80s ever were. And it was, I was also living in the East Village um, at between uh, 1987 to about 2005. And the way the city has changed in terms of where my apartment is to what it is now is something that's sci-fi. I mean, when I moved down to the 13th Street in 87, it was crack central. Mm-hmm. Union Square Park was desolate, filled with drug addicts. The idea of a, you know, a Whole Foods or Zeckendorf Tower, far, far, far in the distance. But what was your, what is your big take from that period? From the 90s, the, the big high, the big lows, the negatives, the positives. What do you remember from that, the 90s? I, I mean, I sort of remember I was in college in 1991 or 92 whenever Smells Like Teen Spirit came out. Mm-hmm. And I, I sort of remember there being like this weird it must have been over a few months, a shift in, you know, all of a sudden, like, the sort of jock guys started wearing flannel. And there was like a, like, wow, is, is being alternative suddenly, you know, that was the word. Uh, I Before alternative, I call it underground. I was into mm-hmm. underground rock. Being underground. Yeah, alternative to what? Yeah, right. What right. does that mean? Yeah. yeah, I mean, pretty, yeah. But being underground, all of a sudden, you know, I could see for someone like myself, you're underground. I, immediately, I was able to talk to new new girls, you know, that, that maybe wouldn't have looked at me before. Almost, I, I felt like there was this alternative revolution, which fizzled out shortly thereafter. But there was sort of a, a honeymoon there um, when Nirvana and, uh, you know, whatever other bands, Smashing Pumpkins, were coming oh, up. Right, right. And, um, and then it sort of just... You know, there was all that prosperity, but it sort of, it sort of just collapsed under its own weight. Yeah. Almost, you know. I mean, you had the Lollapalooza's tours, right. and then they stopped happening, and they because it just sort of, it all seemed ridiculous or something. You know, but when I had Stephen Maltmus on, and we were talking about the '90s and uh, Pavement's kind of ascension through the decade, his take on it 
was that they they were kind of a reaction, he said, to everything that was the 80s, that everything in the 80s was terrible. That the, the 90s for them was a reactive way of dealing with the 80s, and creating pavement was a way to uh, be reactive against that sound that swallowed everything up. He said they weren't really necessarily happy, that it was kind of, of the whole idea of touring, putting records together was fraught with stress, and uh, there were problems within the band, and you know it just kind of exploded at a certain point where I guess he quit after, I guess it was a Coachella show maybe in 93. But the fans' narrative of the band, looking at it from outside, is very different. Is there anything about the pavement narrative that could be attached to the hold study? Yeah, I, I think one of the things he's talking about is, you know, there's there people are always asking you about like, you know, is there are the fights artistic and that's rare. But what you also are doing is you're running a small business and, you know. Um, you have five guys in the band. There's really in rock and roll, usually there's some like uh, it's not. There's no hierarchy, and it's like everyone has to be kind of cool and sort of equal. But you know, things don't always seem super equal. And then you're running a business too. So if someone does something crazy with money, that affects you as well as you know anything artistic. So I think that a lot of the narrative maybe that he's talking about is you know there's things that are unpopular. Someone's taking more of the publishing, etc. Those are the things that are very behind the scenes that is, you know, that that, that, that affect the band members that are never going to be probably discussed in public. That's really interesting to hear because that leads to my next kind of uh, question. Because one of the more depressing music documentaries I've seen recently was not the Amy Winehouse doc or the Kurt Cobain montage of Heck doc, but this very little-known doc about The Clash that was released last year called The Rise and Fall of The Clash. A band, uh, younger listeners, who was for more than just a brief moment, three years at the most, seemed to be the best rock band in the world. And that's really based on only two records, London Calling and Sandinista. Sandinista is a sprawling three-disc record that could have been a master piece have cut down to one, I believe, and younger listeners, this all took place in a very different world between 1980 and 1983. And the documentary, even though we've all heard the stories about how the band fell apart, is frustrating and depressing. It's depressing to see the failure all laid out. And what is incredibly depressing about the narrative is that it comes down to lead singer and rhythm guitarist Joe Strummer having a huge problem with the incredibly charismatic lead guitarist Mick Jones. And this problem was all in Strummer's head, essentially. He was jealous. Strummer wanted the focus on him, but Mick diluted that focus. They were two incredible musicians and shared frontman status in a way. But Strummer being driven crazy by this is something I kind of don't want revealed. And it was all a long time ago, I know, in a world far, far away, and we're, we're grown-ups now, so let's deal with it. But I found the movie to be unpleasant, and not unpleasant in a good way, but unpleasant in an unpleasant way. And I guess because it provides insight into the band's history and Strummer's history that you might not want to know. Uh, and it's also very poorly made. Let's just get that out of the way. And um, Mick Jones gets fired by Strummer, and Strummer keeps the band going, but it automatically falls apart without Jones, who in subsequent solo records proves he was not only a huge part of the band's onstage charisma and musicianship, but also a very good songwriter. And you see everybody in a different light, especially Strummer, who is, was, for a lot of us, a, a hero of sorts, 
but is presented here as a terrible hypocrite who was far too much under the sway of Bernie Rhodes, their somewhat demonic manager. Uh, Strummer realizes the terrible mistake he made and invites Jones back into the band, and Jones refuses, and everything goes up in smoke. So, yeah, getting back to what you were talking about, the Holt study, I guess it's easy to understand or grasp Strummer's problem with the more charismatic and flashy Jones. Not that I'm saying that's that was the difficulty within your band or any band, one man jealous of another man's mm-hmm. getting all that attention. But the rivalry that Strummer felt over Jones seems so petty in the face of them on the verge of becoming one of the greatest rock bands. It's kind of breathtaking in retrospect that that would fell the clash. But again, can you watching that understand the demons that were going on there? Did it make it clear for you? Absolutely. And I think, you know, if you look at, you'd say the Rolling Stones or the Who, they have those same things, but they have so much money to protect themselves from that. Meaning, you know, if they can each take separate health helicopters to the show, they never really have to deal with it. Um, and The Clash was not operating on that level, even though they were a big band. And they were... It's it's funny, you know, you mentioned Sandinista, and um, I, I've come up with this because my, my friend Patrick has the band Titus Andronicus, and they just oh, yeah. released a triple album. That's and right. I sort of get angry at the people who put on, like, this should be shorter. This should. It's like, of course it should be on some level. He knew what he was doing when he made a th- three albums. And I think back to Sandinista, which, you know, the, the prevailing wisdom was this could have been great if we would have knocked half of it out. But now, in 2015, I'm glad to have every one of those songs. Yeah. And that's sort of the, when you're taking the, the big view, you're like, why couldn't The Clash have just worked it out? But, um, you know, they, they also may have done some really terrible music if they would have gotten <laughs> back together. And, you know, you think about what all these people, you know, do you think Hendrix, if, you know, he lived, would he have made only good music? Um, probably not. He would have done something along the line to sully his legacy. But, you know, so maybe we, we idolize the class and the clash are after the replacements, my second favorite band. Um, but you, there is this thing with Joe Strummer that's, you know, he's my favorite. Um, yeah. He actually came to a Lifter Puller concert and uh, kissed me on the lips, oh which was God. pretty great. Um, uh, and I got to hang out with him. But then when that move, the other movie, The Future is Unwritten, I yeah. think it's called, yeah, came yeah, out. Yeah. And I was just started dating my girlfriend now. And, I was, you know, she was not that aware of The Clash or Joe Strummer. So I took her to the movie, and I was expecting, like... Here it is. This is why this guy's so great. And the lights came up, and she's like, he seems like kind of a dick. (laughs) You know? And he was on the ecstasy at the end, and, you know, jumping around in parking lots. And you're like, well, this isn't that Joe Strummer. What about the part where he's awesome? Yeah. Um, So, you you know, but but it's all humans, and it's it's in tight, tight spaces, and, you know, you're you're having to make decisions um, as, you know, in some ways a corporation runs smoother because you have the CEO that says this is how it's going to happen. If you don't like it, you can go. Well, something as ambitious as Sandinista, I guess the new Titus Andronicus record uh, is in that uh, wheelhouse. But you've made concept albums, and you've made albums that aren't so conceptual Mm. in nature, but the Album, nonetheless, seems to be the Hold Study's artistic statement in a way, rather than the insistence of the single, which is now dominating the culture. It's all about the single. It's all about the YouTube video. It's not about the album. On the Kurt Vile podcast, we talked about how an album is about the totality of an experience and not just one song or two songs. That the record plays like a film or a novel. That the people making the record are usually quite 
conscious of its movements, of its placement of tracks, of how it flows from song to the next song, suggesting that it is something to be experienced as a whole. It has a beginning for the artist making it. It has a last song by the artist making it. And that's placed there for a reason. And we were on the Kurt Vile podcast, we were talking about how Jason Isbell's brilliant Southeastern record is a full form experience, even though, you know, there are certain tracks I like listening to more than others. But for the first rounds of listening to that record, I got that in order to fully get it, you needed to listen to the entire thing and that it built and that there were recurring motifs here and there. And that by the time you got to the final track, uh, Relatively Easy, it moves you so much more because it becomes a kind of summing up of everything you've been listening to, that that song becomes incredibly hopeful in a way that maybe just as as a as a standalone doesn't isn't imbued with that kind of meaning. And you seem to be getting this less and less in a society where artists and audience are obsessed with singles. Am I crazy? I mean, do you have that same connection to the experience of a record? Absolutely. I mean, I think when the, everyone's saying it's going to singles, why don't you just put out one song? That's, that's just not that interesting to me. And I think about, you know, when I'm writing, I'm thinking about albums. That's, I mean, that's how I experience music. I got, you know, Led Zeppelin or Rolling Stones records, and I think, okay, this is a great album. And so you're always thinking, like, I want to make this album. That's how I, I always think of it. I'm sure people younger than me are, are not going to and not think of things that way. But I think it's very important. I think you, and you know, with the song, or you're, it's almost like you're editing a film. You know, mm-hmm. you're saying, if I put that song on the first side, the album's going to flow different. It's going to say something slightly different, I think. Um, so you're, you're constantly tinkering with that. And uh, that said, you know, when you're making an album, it's funny, the, it, there's always a lot of pain about the sequence, but the first and last song almost reveal themselves to you yeah. while you're making yeah. it. You're like, well, this is the first song. You know, it just right. feels right, you know. But then, you know, on the new solo album, for instance, I I ended with an upbeat song um, because I wanted it to go hope, hopeful. Mm-hmm. And I all the Hold Steady stuff kind of have epic songs at the end. And, and this one was like a two-minute you know, uh, song that's just kind of a upbeat. And I thought, well, that's how I want to end. I want, to, I, you know, I want it to end hopeful, and I want people to kind of spring in their step when they end. And the other thing about your music and your songs is, of course, the literary pedigree of the songs, and not in a, in a fancy, pretentious way. And I was thinking about how you you gravitated toward a, a band and making records rather than writing a novel, though I, I know that you tried to write a novel at one point, and it just was, you went off the rails. What happened? I, I went off, I, I think I didn't, I wasn't honest. I didn't have a good plan. I, I, I envisioned it. I had this opportunity to write, rent this house upstate, and it was inexpensive and nice, and I was like like, you know what, I'm going to go up there. And then I was like, what do I do there? I'm going oh, to write a novel. <laughs> and I just didn't have a plan. I got many thousands of words in, tens of thousands. And I was like, I, I just didn't, I, I hadn't thought the thing through. And, and I got discouraged. But I also got discouraged by the lack of feedback. I mean, I think being a musician, even if you're showing a song to the band, they're like, yeah, that's great. That's great. I love the chorus. I didn't have that. And I think maybe I needed it. Um, it's something I'd like to do, but I'm going to try to talk about it less and do it more. Um, but... I think the songs just have always been how I, I can I can write. Um, I can sit down and say I'm going to write a song, and I often do. And you know, without any plan, write a song and then go back and edit it and see if it's anything good. And those are just I guess that's just what I've been doing, and that's the way. Again, that's sort of my response to my life. 
I don't think I've ever heard uh, Joan Didion name-checked in a rock song. And I know that Joan Didion and Graham Greene are name-checked in Honolulu Blues. And, and I saw on your Instagram that you were reading uh, an advanced copy of the new Joan Didion biography called The Last Love Song, which is, I think, just coming out. Mm-hmm. How is it? It's, it's really good. I mean, it's, it's in this one style where I think it's somewhat maybe it reads like a novel kind of. And it, the writer, I feel like, almost uses didion-esque language at times which is you know but there's facts in there that is really uh, really great and i'm a huge fan and i think for uh, i'm the part that i'm really interested in right now is the california stuff not you know she came from a descendant of a donner party yeah and that sort of old sacramento which is you know holding on to big parts of land you know and and sort of this um libertarian or republican yeah. stance that she had um largely formed by you know growing up there and yes. wanting wanting no interference but also then moving into the nixon reagan california and sort of this um kind of you know again california republicanism yeah. that um that i don't think just because i i didn't spend the time in california until i was older and, and it's not what i think about um when i think of california i think of the beach boys and and you know that kind of freedom but i guess there there was you know that conservatism and that kind of thing um that's interesting to me a very different conservatism than the conservatism now the republican that we're talking about the kind of republicanism that we're talking about is was not marred by religion right in terms of like interesting that you're bringing up california because the next thing i want to talk to you about are the eagles one of the things that comes up every now and then on the podcast with musicians and it's maybe it's me i don't know is that the eagles always come up and they are of course the biggest american band in u.s history and they are met with almost total derision with every musical guest i've had on I'm a semi-defender, but you've said, I can sing most Eagles songs, even though I never bought a record and never liked the band. And Stephen Malkmus of Pavement has called them rich, greedy hippies who only really care about the peaceful, easy feeling of money. Are they really as bad as everyone says, or is the hate about something else? I think the hate's about something else, probably. I mean... I think uh, to me, it's just something that was omnipresent. Like it, I, you know, I watched that documentary when it came out, and almost yeah. made me, I was forced to deal with the fact <laughs> that at some point there wasn't an Eagles. You know, I mean, <laughs> the Eagles just, you know, when I first turned on the radio, there there were, and uh, you never think about where these things come from. So yeah, I mean, they seem like they, you know, that by the time you know Eagles' greatest hits was out, they were everywhere. I, you know, my parents friends had them in the eight tracks and oh yeah um and so they were you know this arch this typical bloated and 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 not that hard rocking right. you know what i mean where led zeppelin is a huge band that flies around in jets but they they really rock hard so i think you give them a little, young men like myself give them something that, that they they aren't they aren't willing to give the eagles but that said you know now there's definitely some eagle songs i really like but you know uh, after too many glasses of wine my girlfriend and i are are uh, known to uh fire up youtube and and look for linda ronstadt videos oh yeah we love you know and she's like the coolest thing ever oh yeah i mean i was just i just well there wasn't one but i did find a live recording of her singing someone to lay down beside me that great carla bonif ballad that she did in like 1975 and it's just you forget that she played stadiums yeah she was and she was so cool and so beautiful and just had something there's a video of her singing willin uh the, mm-hmm. uh, yeah. the, that song uh that's just amazing and like she's just a huge star i know and really 
partly responsible for the Eagles getting right. together in a way. You know, I often wonder how does a band like the Eagles become as popular as they did? It was a moment, I guess. They were both a rebuke to, uh, well, they both kind of confirmed 70s disillusionment. But in a, I guess in a way that was very easy to take, because Hotel California is a pretty pessimistic record. It confirms what so many boomers were thinking about at that period. You know, the 60s are over. Where did it get us? We're stuck in the 70s. Yeah. And for an album that kind of dark to be as popular as it was suggests, first of all, a, a very different time in the culture where a, a record like that or movie like The Godfather or whatever, whatever, I mean, 70s pessimism, you know, yeah. but I don't know why, why did they hit that moment? What was it about them if, as an American who listened to music? Timing? Timing? The, why, the tunes? Easy to take? I think the tunes were easy to take. I mean, they, they worked on a number of different formats, if you think of it on a radio way, you know, I mean, that could be Country, on light FM, rock, pop, or, soft, you know, easy listening. Yeah. Yeah. So they're across the dial, so to speak. So they have that, that with, I think that, you know, and I also think there are people out there, a lot of people who might not get the um, nuances of the song, for instance, Hotel California, and think that it's just a great song about California. You or know? haunted hotel. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, or just, you know, I mean, like, I think some people kind of skip the verses. Right, you right, know, right. And, and get to, you know, Hotel California. Let's talk about the replacements. Mm-hmm. Probably my favorite band, the great Minneapolis band from the 1980s. You've said that their third album, Let It Be, from 1984, was the first record you heard that spoke to you in terms of having a kind of truth to it that you hadn't found yet in other bands. So that's you know you're you're in eighth grade when you were blown away by the replacement. That's very cool. I, it wasn't until I was a sophomore in college where <laughs> I first heard the replacements and was blown away. But I want to start off with one thing that kind of uh, and you kind of clarified it earlier in the podcast. You, you said I didn't know anyone who looked like Paul Westerberg, the replacement lead singer. It was such a big moment for me because up until that point, I never considered that a normal dude like me could be in a rock band. And now I think I misread it and I found it initially strange because I was thinking about, yeah, Jim Morrison is a great beauty, but Elvis Costello, Jeff Lynne, Elton John, Roger Waters, Robert Plant. I mean, I guess you were not talking about handsomeness as much as you were talking about normalcy. Yeah, and also like someone like Elvis Costello was British, which I couldn't wrap That's my true. head around. Um, but normal. I mean, I saw guys all the time who looked like Paul Westerberg. And I mean, the way I came to the replacements was actually funny. I was playing tennis with this guy and and he we played tennis a lot and he was like this cool guy who was a year older than me and he had this very cool sister and he was like you know my sister I think she was dating one of them and I was like I, I he said if you like the Ramones you'd probably like the replacement so I went to the store because I knew someone who knew someone who had made a record I mean I that, that was my connection to it I wanted to touch this thing because you know someone who who you know just a few steps away had made a record so i got hoot nanny and then i was excited for let it be to came out come out and when it came out i was in junior high and that's when things were not going that hot for me so for unsatisfied and 16 blue those those songs very sad songs uh really spoke to me but um there was also kind of you know the balls out uh were coming out and and gary's got a boner Uh, you know Gary's Got a Boner is on the same side of a record as Unsatisfied and 16 Blue, which is why I think it's an incredible record. And then you you have these very well-thought-out songs like that, and then you have these senior video, which barely has any words, and it's just fun. I think that there's something in there, wrapped in there, that's kind of everything I want about a rock and roll band. And you pick up the cover, and there's these very cool-looking, but approachable 
guys sitting on a roof um, in a house that was, you know, I like a lot of the houses around. I saw the replacements uh, when they were sober, and I saw the replacements when they were not. And I preferred the sober shows. Unanimously, I preferred the sober mm-hmm. shows. Uh, the drunk shows were a thrill for about five minutes, and then it just became kind of frustrating. Uh, so it was about 50-50 for me. 50% of the time, uh, listeners the band would be sober and play blistering just the great, great concerts. And then the other time they'd be kind of joking off doing covers and not, you know, running around stage. I'm assuming you've seen both. Which one did you prefer? I prefer the sober. Um, I mean, I think that the second time I saw them when they still had Bob Stinson uh, and they were sober and just firing on all cylinders was just so thrilling. The first time I saw them, I saw them at the 7th Street Entry in Minneapolis. And they were, I mean, I, I think probably not drunk as drunk as was possible but they were irreverent in a way i'd never seen a band be you know i thought you came out and you kicked ass and they were playing covers and giving them up halfway through and you know wandering off stage and it was it was was frustrating for me um especially for what i knew at the time and uh, i've seen various degrees of it but i yeah i like i mean even in seeing them in these reunion shows and the whole steady open up for two of them i love seeing them play well what are your feelings about the trajectory of the replacements? And it's something I get into fights with, um, not fights, but this heated discussions with fans of the band who have problems with the later records, which, by the way, I love. Please to meet me and Don't Tell a Soul. They have a lot of problems with Don't Tell a Soul, a record that I, I, I find that a lot of fans of the band tend to ignore. It's too slick. There are too many ballads. It's too overproduced, too MTV, too 80s in a way. But I loved it. And Don't Tell a Soul is a very, very long way from Hootenanny, and it seems to be a more accurate representation of where Westerberg wanted to go as a songwriter. Right. I mean, we all know that All Shook Down, I guess, is, was basically Westerberg solo show yeah. with a replacement's title on it. But how do you feel about the uh, the trajectory of the band? I mean, I... I, I sympathize with it you know i mean i could see where it would be exhausting to be doing kids don't follow and the you know the sorry ma and and stink stuff as you grow to be an adult and a grown man and get in your 30s and eventually your 40s you don't even with you know what i do i don't always feel you know i feel different at 43 than i did at 33 when i wrote some of these songs and and I'm in a different place, and so the, the access of what you are putting into things is different. And um, I think you know he has every right to, if you want to call it mature, but change at very least. And I think you know I, I think he's, he continues to be a great songwriter. I agree, and, and again, incredibly charismatic frontman with classic songwriting skills, never really quite making it into the commercial sphere that record companies hoped for, that the band hoped for. And the band has a very compelling, slightly depressing narrative to it that makes me, it gives me a feeling that I like. I, I can't explain it. I mean, it makes me root for them, I guess. Yeah, they were underdogs. I feel like, and growing up in Minneapolis before they even had national fame, I felt like we rooted for them like a sports team. You know, I remember when they went off and did Saturday Night Live, it was like, you know, I can't believe this. They're doing it. And even though I was in high school, I felt like behind them, you know, or as part of it. And, uh, I think that that's some of their their charm, this underdogness. And I do say, like, the reunion shows, I saw four of them. I felt like it was cool to see the crowds, which were bigger than they ever played for, the, you know, in their full time. And 
it almost felt like we want to show these four guys, especially the two guys, Tommy and Paul, how much these songs mean to us. Yeah. And, you know, to see 17-year-old kids and their dads screaming amazing. every word, it was amazing, amazing. And it was very touching, I thought. You brought this up early on, barely touched upon it. Let's talk about Bruce Springsteen and an artist's shelf life. There is the notion that maybe every artist has their great years and then those years pass and that's just what happens, you know? The bulk of the great work is done between then and then and that's it. You know, there are a few exceptions but not a lot. The idea that a band only has a limited amount of time, that there is an incarnation of the band when it is at its best or an artist when they are at their best and then they're not and and that's just a fact. I mean, Springsteen, for example, I think Hits his stride with a third record, Born to Run, and a pretty great run ensues. You've got Darkness on the Edge of Town, you have The River, you have Nebraska, you have Born in the USA. Though That is a place that some people, Bruce, will step off. But I disagree. I think Tunnel of Love, uh, right after that, is pretty good. Yeah. Then, yes, you get to Lucky Town and Human Touch, and this is the first really not great Springsteen. Um, well, what else is there? I guess The Rising has its I moments. I think Magic is great. I was just going to say that. So what you are left with is Magic, which is really Bruce Springsteen's best song of the 2000s. And I think it also has his best moment in the new century, which is Girls in Their Summer yeah. Clothes. You know, so, But everything surrounding this is kind of whatever. You know, where, you know, yes, there's, there's some spectacular live recordings put out. Uh, in the Land of Hope and Dreams is a great live yeah. recording. It's a great live recording of Out in the Street. But everything else is kind of like a shrug around now. And I see this a lot with writers and a lot with filmmakers as well. And you can either become wistful about this or shrug it and say that's just life. I mean, do you look at artists that way? Do you ever look at the whole study that way? You know, there's going to be, there's, there's, you know, when you think about the whole study, there's going to be, when you stick around, right? So, like, there's people uh, in 2005 when we're on Separation Sunday that wouldn't miss a show. They were 24 years old then, and now they're 34, and they're on their second kid, and they they have to miss a show. They they you know uh, there is their their lives are different. So um, you you your audience kind of grows with you, and you're gonna you're gonna experience some of that. Um, I think with the Springsteen thing, what's amazing and which keeps them extremely relevant is there's almost no feeling like a Bruce Springsteen concert. True. I mean, you go into that building. I, my girlfriend, who's younger, had a different relationship with Springsteen. She didn't see him as cool. Mm-hmm. And I brought her to her first Springsteen show. And she said, at the end, she said, I was all wrong about that. That's actually my favorite artist. Mm-hmm. You know, I mean, there, there's something really tangible, I feel like, you, you get um, from a Bruce Springsteen concert, which I think makes him... Can, you know, no matter what he does in the recorded ver- uh, recorded world, keeps him so relevant. Before Faith in the Future, you had Clear Heart, Full Eyes, which was your first solo record from 2012. And it's a title that's lifted from the great television series Friday Night Lights, which I will argue is the best network show ever televised. Mm-hmm. And I'm just curious, um, love the record, but what was it about that show that worked for you? And also, why do you think it never really got an audience and was so precarious at NBC and they finally dumped it the last season? And um, what, what was it about that show that spoke to you? Why, why did it affect you so much? Well, I, there was a couple things. Um, I loved, you know, that it ended up kind of being about the marriage, you know, somewhat between the, the coach and his wife was such a big part of it as you got into it that I thought was the way they cooperated. I, I, liked, I loved the fact that the, 
They, they didn't always win. There was something yes. great. And I wonder if that's maybe why it wasn't popular. Because, you know, you... you after a lifetime of television, you know, you, I see, oh, they've got the ball on the 12-yard line, and there's three seconds left, and they're down by six, or they're down by five, which means a touchdown wins it. And you think, everything I've ever watched, they score this. You know, almost everything I've seen in movies and TV in my 43 years here would say they have to score. And then they don't score, and they lose, and that's the end. Of, and that's more like real life. Well, I think also that's why the show's going to last forever. I think if it did end with them winning, I don't know if it would have stayed in people's you know hearts and minds. It's kind of like The Sopranos ending that way or The Wire ending a certain way. I think Mad Men made a disastrous choice in its final season to kind of wrap everything up quite happily and ironically. And I think it really decimates the longevity for our thinking about that show. I think if that show had ended like it began, I think we'd be talking about it a lot more than we are going to be talking about it. Right, right. Freddie Sinellis here for True Car. People everywhere, no matter where they are, use their mobile phones. So it makes sense a company like True Car would come along and create a mobile app that makes buying a new car simple and fun. You just download the True Car app, configure the car you want, and you can see what others actually paid for the same car down to your zip code. Then you can lock in guaranteed savings from True Car certified dealers in your area. On average, over three grand off MSRP. Save time, save money, and never overpay. Download the True Car app today.